uh, for those that may be joining us a little bit later or uh, for those that uh, just may be watching, my name is Rob. I serve as one of the pastors here and we are in the middle of our series on how to read our Bible, how to go through our Bible. And uh, on New Year's Day, uh, we set a goal uh, for our church and the goal is lofty, but the goal is very simple. Here's, here's what we wanna do for those, maybe you're joining us for the first time or just to kind of remind us what, our, what the goal is. The goal for us this year as a church and individually is to stay in the center of God's will. That's it. We're not talking about numerical goals. We're not talking about financial goals. We're talking about one simple goal that you and I know what it means to be and to stay in the center of God's will. Now, it sounds like Christianity 101 because it is. It is. This, is. this is the goal of our life, to glorify God and to stay in the center of his will. But let me ask you a question. Is, is it, raise your hand if you think it's easy to stay in the center of God's will. Bunch of Pharisees, right? And nobody raised their hand, right? No, nobody's going to do that, right? How many of us would say, you know, because we're mere mortals, it is sometimes downright impossible to stay in the center of God's will, right? Because we are wicked, rotten sinners. We want to do what we want to do. We want to feel how we want to feel. But here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that you want to stay in the center of God's will, but you do everything to sabotage you staying in the center of God's will? And we that's why when we set up all these New Year's resolutions, they're done by, if we're lucky, February because we've ruined them all, right? But what would it look like for our church to be transformed if we just kept it that simple, staying in the center of God's will? And one of the things, the questions that we asked ourselves was how would we know if we're in the center of God's will? Like how would we know what to do and how would we know not to do? So what we do is we go to the word of God. And if we stay in God's word, this is what we talked about last week, if we stay in God's word, hopefully we'll stay in the center of God's will. If we're not going to be in God's word, there's no way you're gonna be in the center of God's will, right? You say, well, maybe I'll, I'll get it by accident, right? Maybe I'll just stumble into the will of God. Who here has graduated from any kind of degree beyond high school? Raise your hand. All right. Do you remember like when we had to take finals and like this was it, either we were gonna graduate or not graduate, right? Did you ever get so tired that you thought if you would leave that textbook under your pillow that it would just kind of absorb inside of your head and you would learn by osmosis? You ever thought that way, right? I did all the time. I, I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not lying, okay? There was one time I was so tired, I had to write a paper on the book of Acts and I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and there were five pages there I don't remember writing, okay? I mean, that's how bad it gets sometimes. Sometimes we get so caught up in the act of doing things that we forget the main point of us being in the word of God isn't to retain all of this knowledge for knowledge's sake. We try to get into the word of God so that God can do what? Communicate with us. One of the principles we brought up, one of the big ones, is the fact that we communicate through, with God through prayer and he communicates to us through his word. And sometimes when we think God is speaking to us through maybe a worship song or maybe a dream at night, all of those things are possible because we don't put God inside of a box, but you better go to the word of God to confirm what he's doing. You know what I mean? I had this kid in my youth group when I used to, when I was a youth pastor down in Georgia, he was in love with this girl and this girl was one year older than him. So she was going to go off to Bible college a year older. And the name of the school was Crown College in Knoxville, Tennessee, right? And her boyfriend, even though he loved her, he had a completely different path. He wanted to become a police officer. But one day he comes to my office and he tells me this, man, pa Pastor Rod, here's what happened. I was driving down the road 
and I passed a Crown gas station. And I knew then and there, God was changing my direction to go, guess where everybody? Crown College, right? I told that kid, okay, I want you to show me in the word of God. I want you to take some time, read in the word, show me where that comes from. And immediately he started Googling all the crown passages in the Bible. But everyone that he looked at told him not to go to crown, right? This is what happens. We can have our thoughts. We can have our ideas. We can even have the, enough intellect and knowledge and, yes, spirituality to start to fathom where God wants us to go or how do we stay in the will of God. But unless we are in the word on a consistent basis, we don't have that assurity that this is where God wants us to go. Even more importantly, if we know for a fact that we are outside of the will of God for whatever reason, to not be in the word at that time is dangerous. And we go further away from the will of God. So this is our goal, to stay in the center of God's will. And last week, we spoke about the fact that the major focus of all 66 books is Jesus. Because Jesus is who? Just like John 1 says, that's the passage that we looked at last week. John 1 says that Jesus is what? The living word of God. And so can we put it this way? If we stay close to Jesus, we should stay close to God's will. If we learn more about Jesus, that we'll stay closer to God's will. If we fall in love with the living word, we'll fall in love with God's will. Because I think that's part of our challenge. That we say we want to be in the center of God's will. But let me put it this way. Do we hunger to stay in the center of God's will? Do we have that love relationship with God that we want to do nothing else except do what? Stay in the center of God's will. Or is, stay, is being in the center of God's will like something that's adjacent to our plans? If we have time, do we see staying in the center of God's will being some supplemental type of thing? Or is it essential for our life to be in the center of God's will? And what I would like to submit to you today is that if we are in the center of God's will, there's safety. If we're in the center of God's will, there is a relationship that is vibrant with, with, with Jesus. And so now what we want to do is we want to take that point a little bit further about Jesus being the focal point of us being in our Bible. So whenever we're in the word of God, we need to see where it leads us and how, what Jesus is trying to say to us, what the spirit is trying to teach us because it is the living word. And now we're gonna talk about why is it important for us to realize that Jesus fulfills everything that the Bible says. Okay, so now we're gonna look at the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how it goes together. And this is important because I, what the, the point I want you to see is this, that for some of us, especially as we're getting going in our Bible reading, it would be good for us to invest a huge portion of our time while we read the word in the New Testament. And then as we get into the New Testament, we can start adding books of the Old Testament based on what the New Testament says about the things that, that, that are in the Old Testament because we, don't, we never want to get to the point that we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because the entire Word of God is 66 books. It, he's perfectly preserved it for us for, for millennia. But sometimes, for, especially for those of us who are getting into it, if we get into some of those Old Testament books without first reading what Jesus says his relationship is to those other books, we may get lost a little bit. 
Now, I'm here to tell you, the Holy Spirit will always teach you something. Okay, that's, I mean, that's, that is paramount. The Spirit of God will always teach a believer something in the Word, but I believe that there is a, a healthy way for us to systematically go through the Bible. Right? And so the Bible puts it this way, that, that babies require milk. And as babies grow up and, and, they, and they get a little bit more uh, a strength inside of them and their teeth start to develop, and then, then they can start eating some solid food, right? And then they can get, really get into some meat. And that's true about your spiritual life. When, when we start out in our faith, we do need the baby's milk of the word of God, these essentials, these foundational things about who Jesus is, about who God is, who the spirit is, what the word of God is, what our, our relationship is to the gospel, what our relationship is to other believers. What did uh, God write the authors of the New Testament for the local church? What, what are important things? And then as we get into those things, we'll see references to the Old Testament. And that, as we start building up our strength, Strength, we'll get into some solid food and then we start adding some more passages in the Old Testament. And then finally, when we start maturing in our faith, we can list, look at some of the harder passages of Scripture and be able through the Spirit of God and through, through, through study and through uh, accountability with other believers, we can see what God wants for us. Because I don't know if you realize this, but staying in the center of God's will is not only difficult and challenging, Staying in the center of God's will requires us to make choices. And so for us to make the right type of choices, you and I need to be in the word of God, but know what it says so that we don't make that mistake of trying to decipher what the word of God says based on our emotional response, right? So we don't try to, to, to do the whole uh, crown gas station equals crown college type of thing, right? So it does take some time. It does take some skill. And so I want us to look at some of that today. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read a few verses, verses 15, uh, 17 to 20. So if you all stand, please, for the public reading of God's word. And we're going to read Matthew 5. We're going to start at verse 17 and go down to verse 20. Jesus is speaking and he says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of, the, of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven." My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. So Matthew chapter 5 is towards the beginning of the book of Matthew, and it's a very famous treatise that Jesus talks about. It's a sermon, and we usually call it, most scholars will call it the Sermon on the Mount. And inside of these chapters, Jesus lays down some very specific things about what the kingdom of heaven is like. This was the, the goal of Jesus on earth. Now remember, the ultimate goal was Jesus to do what? To pay the price and die for our sins on the cross, right? And then to rise again three days later to show us not only did he have the ability to 
pay the price for our sins, which led to our forgiveness. Because he rose again from the grave, we know that it worked, but also that he can provide for us not only forgiveness, but also eternal life, right? That was the ultimate goal. That was staying in the center of God's will for Jesus. But throughout his life, the 33 and a half years that he was here, especially during the, his public years of ministry, those, those last three and a half years, Jesus provided a lot of commentary and lessons on what? What heaven is like. And what the people who are citizens of heaven should live like. And so he uses two phrases, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven to describe not only a location, but who is the one that is the founder of this kingdom. And it's God. So how, how do you and I live a godly life? How do you and I act like citizens of heaven, even though we live here on the earth? And so the Sermon on the Mount is one of these essential things that Jesus shares. And so towards the beginning of this letter, he says some things about the word of God that was already written. So now let's think about this for a second. In the timeline, when Jesus comes on the scene, we do have the Old Testament written, and it's, and it's described as what? The law and the prophets. And that's, that's a good way to describe it because the Old Testament consists of several different portions. You have the Pentateuch, the first five books. Then you have books of history, you have books of poetry, you have books of wisdom. You have the, the major prophets, the minor prophets. You have all of these things in there. And the way that they would normally describe the Old Testament, that's something that we normally call it because Jesus said he's the New Testament. So before he makes that statement, it's usually called the law and the prophets. So Jesus says something in verse 17 that, that starts to let us know who he is and how he fulfills what the word of God, which is already written, the Old Testament, what it says. He says a few things. The first thing that I want you to see is that he says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That's a big statement. And you have to wonder why, why would Jesus make this bold statement? I mean, it, it's God, right? It's God the Son. He can go, hey, I am, I am the word of God. Listen to me. And that could be all, right? But he makes it clear. He goes, hey, for those of you that may be wondering whether I'm saying everything that's happened so far, everything that's transpired in human history, everything that's transpired in, in the ancestry of, of the Jewish people, I'm not saying that stuff's not important. I'm not saying that what I'm going to teach you makes this null and void. What I am saying is that I've come to complete what those books were saying. I've come to be what? To be the sum total of the reason why we have to keep the law. The, the reason that you and I are supposed to keep the law, to keep the, what the prophets say, to keep the Old Testament, which we can never do. The reason why we're supposed to do that is to do what? To maintain our relationship with God. And so because when you, when you start growing up in your faith in this Old Testament system, you realize right away there is absolutely no way you can keep all that law. There's no way. People have tried. Pharisees say that they get close. There's no way that in the Old Testament people didn't sin. And all of a sudden New Testament states we're the only ones that have sinned. Old Testament saints lived the exact same life that we lived. They sinned. But God provided a way through this, this system of sacrifices, of, of them being able to see the cost of their sin, that they had to give up a perfect animal. They had to give up, and then it would die. Blood would have to be shed. All these things, every time that they would make a trespass, sins of commission and omission, there were different things that they would have to do. They would have to celebrate feasts. There was this, forgive the, the phrase, a very religious system. In order to do what? To keep 
or maintain this relationship. And even through this time, before Jesus comes on this scene, there are these centuries of silence where no prophets are speaking. The, the, the law is like this stagnant thing. Everything, it wasn't the way it was. They were being captured and they were being put in exile and then they were brought back and then under this, this Roman governmental system. They never felt like themselves. And so this idea of this, of this law and prophets being important to them was starting to fade away. And the only ones that would try their hardest to keep the law and prophets either wound up failing or becoming like Pharisees and thinking that they're better than other people. So this is the climate that Jesus comes into. And he tells them, listen, my job isn't to say that everything back then was garbage, that it's not enough. He's saying all those things point to what I'm going to do. And think about it, what did Jesus come to do? He came to be that ultimate sacrifice. He came to be that ultimate lamb of God that would pay the price for our sins. He came to be the, the ultimate feast. He became the, 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 the ultimate expression of who God is. So no longer would we have to follow this religious system. We would now have a personal relationship with him. And so he says, I, I don't come to abolish. I come to fulfill. I'm the sum total of what the Old Testament says. And that's why it's important for us to remember what? That Jesus is the focal point. Because he is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So he goes on to say, For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of, the, of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So the other relationship that Jesus mentions that he has with the, with the Old Testament is not just that he comes to fulfill it, but that it is powerful and it is authoritative and no part of the Old Testament will ever fade away because it's what? It's part of the word of God. So this is why when some people say, you know, we really don't have to worry about the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament type of guy. Don't be an Old Testament or a New Testament type of guy. Be a biblical type of guy. Be someone who gets into every book of the Bible because Jesus makes it clear the Old Testament is important. And he goes, hey, none of it's going to pass away. All of it's going to be fulfilled and it's going to be accomplished in me. And we know that nothing that Jesus touches, nothing that Jesus is a part of fades away. So it'll all come together through Jesus, but then remain for eternity because he's the fulfillment of the law. And so when the Bible says that the word of God is authoritative, that it is inspired, that it's infallible, we mean the entire Bible, not just portions of it. Because it's Jesus fulfilling it. So he says, none of it's going to pass away. It's all going to be accomplished. So he says, so because of these things, in verse 19, whoever breaks one of these least commandments or teaches others to do the same thing will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever doesn't teach these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So now, this one's tough. All right, so Jesus is saying, okay, none of it's going to go away. The Old Testament is as important as what Jesus is saying. But then he says this, unless you become an expert of teaching these things and following these things, you know, he kind of ranks in heaven where you'll be. If you don't follow what it says, you're going to be really, really low in the kingdom of heaven. If you, if you follow my commands, you'll be high in the kingdom of heaven. That makes sense. But then he drops his gauntlet at the end and he says what? Unless you become like the Pharisees and know it like they do, you ain't getting in. That sounds kind of 
counter to what Jesus says, right? Now, I want you to put it together, though. Are you and I able to get into heaven on our own? No? Maybe you're here for the first time and you go, yeah. Well, how would somebody, how does somebody get into heaven? Well, according to Jesus, they have to follow the law so much to the letter, they have to have the same attitude, not activities, the attitude of the Pharisees and scribes and know so much of it and keep it that every part of the Old Testament, including what Jesus is currently saying as the word of God is being written, this New Testament, you have to follow all of that in order to get into heaven. And you go, well, I do. Do you? Really? Do you follow all, do you know all of it? I mean, have you ever touched a football? That's pigskin. You're going to hell, dude. I mean, have, have you ever, I don't know, wore a different, I mean, dude, I'm in trouble right now. I got like pink socks on with brown shoes. I'm, I'm done. I mean, they want, I mean, in, in, in the word of God, you're supposed to have like these, these bland colors, earth tones only, Right? There are all these things, all these little intricacies that you're not supposed to do. I mean, some of us shouldn't even be talking to one another because we have different color hair. Some of you colored your hair, which is a no-no. Like, I mean, some of you got too short of a haircut, some of you have too long hair, we're all going to hell. So what does it mean then? That we have to keep all of this? No. What does Jesus say? He is the fulfillment of that. The only way someone gets to go to heaven is to receive what Jesus Christ has done for us because we can't keep that law. You and I, we are on our way to hell because of our, the things that we've thought, the things that we've said, and the things that we've done. And the only hope that we have to ever step foot into heaven is to receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ and to receive eternal life through him. That is why it's so key that he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament said because the Old Testament shows us there's no way that we can keep it. Jesus says, you can't. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to be tempted just like you were. I'm going to, I'm going to be tempted in all the major points of the Old Testament, but I'm never going to sin once. So when I die for you, I can pay that price because I'm sinless. That's what Jesus came to do. So when he says that he's a fulfillment and he goes, you can't get in unless you keep the commands like those scribes and Pharisees, he knows full well because you remember, they're also in this crowd listening to this sermon. He's telling them, you guys have the attitude that you're going to get in by what you do. No one can keep the law. It's only through Jesus. And I say all that because I want us to look at the beginning of Matthew chapter five now. And we don't have this on the slides because I want you to read it and I want you to listen to what he says because Jesus bring this, brings this point home in the beginning of the chapter. So I want us to start in Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse one. So when Jesus sees the crowds, Matthew five, one says, he went up into the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and then he began to teach them saying, so I want to real quick just think, bring about the, the scene here in Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus leaves, wherever Jesus is, especially during this time of this public ministry, people follow Jesus. 
all certain types of group of people follow Jesus. His disciples follow Jesus. Pharisees follow Jesus. Uh, spectators follow Jesus. Curiosity. People who are curious, they follow Jesus. All these people follow Jesus. So wherever he was, there were some sort of crowd. Even when he was at the Zebedee's house, there were people hanging outside, people trying to come in through the roof. Like, I mean, everybody was around when Jesus was. He was, even though he was... Uh, considered a radical, even though he was prolific, he was popular, right? So people were around Jesus all the time. And so in this particular time, the Bible says that Jesus was, he saw the crowds and Jesus did something. Jesus does something that is kind of I mean, you know, Jesus likes to be with sinners. I mean, that's what we always talk. I mean, the song is Jesus friend of sinners, right? What does he do in this moment though? He leaves and he goes up where? Up into a mountain. Right? He leaves the crowd. He leaves the multitude and he goes up to a certain point. And then what does he do? He stops and he sits. And when he gets there, what does the Bible say? Who's there now? His disciples. There is a very good organic teaching in this verse. In order to follow Jesus and to stay in the center of his will, and to, I would argue, listen to what Jesus is saying, you have to leave the crowd. Sometimes it's not popular to listen to what Jesus says. There's too much noise in the crowd. There's, there's too many cooks in the kitchen in the crowd. There's too many people who will divert you from staying in the center of God's will. And so when Jesus goes up into the mountain, he is, he's asking us, non-verbally to do what? Follow him. And some of us, that's, our, that's going to be our biggest struggle staying in the center of God's will is that we don't want to leave the crowd. There's safety in numbers, right? And some of us, like we talked about last week, we'll settle for this second or third rate type of Christianity and we'll settle and we go, ah, I'm good enough. I, I, I'm adjacent to the center of God's will. I, I'm okay where I am. I don't need to be all spiritual, Rob. I'll be right here. And you and I know when we're in that type of attitude, what happens to us? We backslide. We're, nobody stays adjacent to the center of God's will and stays in a good life. They always fall backwards. So Jesus makes this very clear. In order to follow, you have to leave the crowd so you can hear what he's saying. And sometimes that's, I mean, that's one of my prayers for us is that we'll leave crowds so that we can hear what Jesus is saying so that we can stay in the center of his will. So imagine the scene of a crowd, Jesus leaving, going up into the mountain. When he sits down, the disciples, that's all who came come to him, and then he starts to teach him. And here's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven's, heaven is theirs. When you are blessed, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this first portion 
the first few verses in Matthew chapter 5, we, we describe them as the Beatitudes because of all of his, his statements starting with the phrase blessed, right? And so remember, we know that that phrase blessed has the idea of, of God honoring what's happening in this, in this portion. And so he says the, the, a very important thing, and sometimes I believe we miss what he's saying. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus makes a very important note into what it, what it means because he doesn't just say blessed are the poor because somebody mistranslates it this way. Blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's the idea, and, and we see it a lot in, in, in social justice settings that it's like, well, you know, because they're poor, they get to go to heaven because they didn't have it good as other people. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He adds a very important two-worded phrase. He goes, those who are poor in spirit. Now, in the original, in the original Hebrew, the way that this is translated is spiritually bankrupt. So we're not talking about somebody who needs help with a meal. We're talking about somebody who needs something or they're going to die. They are bankrupt. They have nothing because what? What does bankruptcy mean? They have nothing because they owe everybody. And that describes how you and I are before we come to Jesus. That at the court of heaven, you and I are bankrupt. There's, like if, if, Jesus, if God was to say, how, how should I let you into heaven? We have nothing to offer him to go, hey, because everything we do, good and bad, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even the good stuff means nothing at the court of heaven because everything we do has to be mounted against what Jesus has done. And so on our own, we are poor in spirit. We have no spiritual life to speak of. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. But the Bible says that God has quickened us or made us alive through his spirit, that God has called us to himself by actually activating something that wasn't there, by putting this regenerative part that wasn't there before. No one seeks after God on their own. We all have gone our own way, and then God, through his mercy and grace, gives us something we don't deserve. And now, all of a sudden, when we hear the word of God, it's different. We, we, we heard it before. We wanted nothing to do with it. And then now all of a sudden, now we realize that we're spiritually bankrupt and we listen to what the word of God says. And that by itself is a gift and grace of God. Him making you alive to hear what the word says is grace and mercy. And you hear what he says. And all of a sudden now there's, there's someone who you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. And when you recognize that, the Bible says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Because those of us who recognize our spiritual state, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. So the grace and faith that we have to believe has now come upon us. And what happens? We receive the message of Jesus. That's exactly what happens to Paul on the road of Damascus. Was, was, Paul, was Paul, was Saul looking for Jesus? No, man, he was going to persecute people who believed in Jesus, and Jesus stops him in his tracks, and he goes, Saul, Saul, why, uh, why do you persecute me? Why are you kicking against the pricks? And then he all of a sudden, this is your role now. You will be an ambassador of the gospel to the Gentiles. Not once did, did, did Paul open up a track. Not once did Paul read a Roman's road. He didn't write it yet. That's the way that God saves. You had nothing to do with it. 
The fact that you're here right now is God moving through history, through traffic, through all these things to get you here because nothing that happens to you spiritually happens because of you or because of something you did. God institutes it and ordains it. And he says, those who are spiritually bankrupt are what? Now have access to the kingdom of heaven. This is important for what he says because of him fulfilling the Old Testament law. He's saying, hey, it never was about you. There was no way that your lamb or your goat or your bull would ever take away the penalty for sin. So it's all been pictures of what Jesus was going to do. There was nothing special about that animal except you tried to pick the best best one from your flock. That's all you did. You gave it to the priest, he killed it. Besides that, you did nothing. It had nothing to do with you. And so now this idea just goes forward like, yes, no longer do you have to give of your, uh, of, of, of your substance. I've done it for you. So this is how he fulfills. He says, those who are bankrupt, they receive heaven. And then he goes, those who, are, who mourn will be comforted. Because if you think about it, those who recognize where they are spiritually, the only proper response is mourning. This is what leads to repentance. We'll put it this way in, in a Christ, Christianese, that you're sorry for your sin. Because that's what it is. That we mourn because of our spiritual condition. Not that we're sorry we got caught, right? But that we're sorry that, that we have sinned. This is what it means to mourn. And he says, what happens? This is the beautiful part about the gospel. Those who know that they're spiritually bankrupt and, and, they're, and there's repentance, what does God offer? comfort and peace through what his forgiveness isn't that such I mean for those of us who know Jesus isn't that like the ultimate God knows what I've done and he loves me anyway when I think about my past I'm provided with comfort that Jesus paid the price for those things when I think about my current state I know that there's hope because Jesus has taken care of the penalty of sin and has offered me eternal life and an abundant life and I'm a new creature in Christ. This morning is met with comfort because of the gospel. And so for those who would go to the temple and understand that they don't have enough money to, to, to give a, a big sacrifice like, like the Pharisee next to them. And, and Jesus tells stories about, about a, a Pharisee who would come and a rich man and, and Pharisees that would come and give all this money at, at, in front of everybody and give to the temple. And this, and this poor widow gives all that she has. And Jesus says, that widow gave everything. That's the greater gift. And like, how could that be the greater gift? Because she gave out of sacrifice, not out of plenty. And so this whole idea of having to compete about whether your gift is good enough was all accomplished through Jesus Christ. That you don't have to worry about whether his gift was good enough. We know it was because he rose again from the grave. So everything he says is fulfilled because Jesus is the only one who has died for our sins and then rose again from the grave. That is the essential part of the gospel. So he says, so here's what happens. There's now a change in verse five, the way that we view things. So we've gone from a, a spirit of, of, of realizing that we're bankrupt to a spirit of mourning. Now verse three, blessed are the humble for they, for they will inherit the earth. Now we start to see characteristics of believers because now we've gone from being spiritually bankrupt to repentance 
And now we see how, how do people who come to Jesus, how do those who are trying to stay in the center of God's will act because Jesus Christ has fulfilled everything? We remain humble. Now, what causes a believer to have a persevering attitude of humility? Because I'm sure we all have moments and spurts of humility, usually when we're humiliated, right? When like we trip and fall, then all of a sudden we know that we're not that big. It's like when I walk out here and I realize that I did not zip up my fly. That's like, that, that's literally like, and the Lord said zip, and then I'm fine. Like, you know, like during the worship song, it's happened a couple of times, probably on video, go back and find it. But like that, that literally like, makes me really like, okay, I, I think I'm big stuff. God just goes, zap, now you're humble, right? You know it's happened to us, right? Or like, you know, on our podcast, I try my best to say the Rock Rewind podcast, and it always comes out, Walk Rewind with Wobbert, like, because that's just, like, that's, these are all humbling things that happen. I know you have them too. You have these humbling moments, I'm talking beyond that, those moments of humility. What causes a believer to have a persevering attitude of humility? Staying in the center of God's will, realizing what? What Jesus has done for us. This is the humility that comes with, I believe, a, a level of maturity. Because I, I think even as a believer, Especially those of us, like when we're getting into the word of God and we're seeing these changes happen in our life and God is moving in our life, sometimes there is this arrogance that comes up, right? Um, a, a good SAT word is sophomoric, right? Because every sophomore you meet thinks they know everything, right? I mean, that's, that, that's what it's like. You hear me, sophomores. You know how y'all are, you know? But like, you think you know everything because now you're in the Bible and like, man, you're sinning less and things are happening, but then you forget, why is this happening? Because of Jesus, not because of you. Jesus is changing you. The Spirit of God is, is doing things in your life. And so these are the things that keep you humble. So praise God for when Jesus humiliates you. Because he keeps you where you're supposed to be. And what, what's the benefit of those who are humble? They'll inherit the earth. They have a life ahead of them. They will be the ones that, that will be there. Their life is longer because they've remained humble. Now, now let's look what happens. This is where it all comes in. And I want you to really see the next characteristic of someone who's blessed because of them realizing their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who do what? They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. Man, this is my prayer for us at the rock for 2023. I want us to hunger and thirst for what God's word says. Because this is where we find righteousness, right? Jesus says, remember, unless you're going to be righteous like the Pharisees and scribes, which is impossible because they're not, the only way the righteousness is gonna come is if we receive whose righteousness? Jesus, because our righteousness is, is not good enough. Our righteousness is tainted. Our righteousness is imperfect. But Jesus' righteousness through his sacrificial blood is what causes us to be able to be called righteous. When God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He doesn't see our deeds. He sees the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's only because of Jesus that we have any relationship with God the Father. And because of these things... You and I should go from recognizing our bankruptcy to repenting and being uh, remorseful 
to then us practicing and staying humble, for us having that humility to recognize that we don't know the answers to everything, that we don't just go to the word of God for answers. We are hungering and we are thirsting. We are craving the word of God. Let me ask you, let's put it this way. Do you crave living a godly life? I want you to think about it for a second. Don't just give me the, the, the church answer, the Sunday morning answer. Do you honestly crave living a holy and righteous life? Is that your goal? Is your goal to be in the center of God's will? Because to be in the center of God's will means that you are set apart from the way you used to be and you now do things the right way. That you put aside all those things that you were doing before and you, you follow what the word of God says for daily living. Not just major decisions. Every decision that we make is, is through what the word of God says. That's where we need to get to individually and corporately as a church for us to even think about staying in the center of God's will. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Here's the promise. If we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, the Bible says we'll be filled. You know what one of the biggest detriments is to staying in the center of God's will? Sometimes we get bored. And this is just a part of human nature. Sometimes we always want the, the, the bigger, better deal wherever it is. We're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. Nothing is good enough. And so what happens is we, we try to stay, stay consistent in our Bible reading and something else grabs our attention. Something else is a little bit more exciting. The, the emotionalism of wanting to be in the center of God's will begins to, to, to wane off and we haven't made a really a deep decision to follow the word of God. It was more like a raising your hand on a Sunday type of thing and all of a sudden and now something else has become either uh, as important or a little bit more important than what our goal was and we get sidetracked immediately. I'm here to tell you, if you and I hunger and thirst for God's word, the Bible promises we'll be filled. We'll be satisfied. When things try to get some of our attention, we may notice it, but we've been satisfied Staying in the center of God's will. And that for us, this is, that would be such, I mean, I want you to just dream with me about that. Imagine being satisfied being in the center of God's will. That nothing else takes precedent than us being in the center of what he wants. Which means that you and I need to have this craving for the word because the word tells us what he wants. So, in your bulletin, there should be some community group questions that you can go over. Just some things I want to bring up quickly as we close out. What does Jesus mean when he says that he did not come to abolish the law? I want you to think about what we talked about. What does Jesus mean when he says that he came to fulfill it? So here's number four is a, a real good one. Hopefully you have some good conversation about this. As Christians, how should we read the Old Testament? And then number five, how do we avoid the temptation of relaxing certain teachings of Christ that we may not like? That's a big one. I want to five, five, uh, that one's a big one because if you think about what we do with the Bible, sometimes we like to pick and choose what we like, right? I mean, all the verses about God blessing us, score, right? But those are the ones that say, like, you know, hey, stop doing that. We're like, eh, did, did God, we sound like Satan. Did God really say that? Like, 
Yeah, he did. <laughs> and he wants you to follow it, right? So I want you to, so in your community groups, you're going to go through those questions and that should give us a, a really good summary of what we talked about today. 